0: So we are uh, going back into uh, the second part of a three week series that we started last week. And, um, we're just titling this, how should we then live? We are considering together in light of, uh, all the turmoil, all the intensity, uh, all the clamor that surrounds our culture, all the competing narratives and counter narratives that are out there. I think about just, man, there's so much doomsday and sort of end of the Republic fury kind of swirling around us and coming at us right now. And so what are we to do? How are we to live for Jesus in such times as these? We're, we're being told. And and I would say convincingly, I think from very different angles, uh, simultaneously, both, how we can potentially right the wrongs of our history, and and yet how we must preserve our history from attacks that are coming against it. We are hearing simultaneously both how we can right the wrongs of our culture, and how we must resist the uh, the, the uh, losing our culture, and and as well as how we might right the wrongs of our distorted Christianity, as well as how we are to preserve the integrity. Of of our faith from those who are trying to distort Christianity. And so, man, we want to get these things right, don't we? Like we want to be on the right side of this stuff, and there's a lot at stake. And so there are those who say that the only way to be a good Christian is to join this side over here. And, and then there's those who say, no, 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 the only way to be a faithful Christian is to dissociate from this side and and, and, and go over here to this side. And so people on all sides are claiming that that, that, that only their side is compatible with Christianity. And so any Christians who end up on the other side from us, they, they end up getting labeled some kind of fake or fraudulent counterfeit Christians. And so the whole thing gets very disorienting and confusing and divisive and it's just it's just not obvious how to think about these days and how we are to distinctly and faithfully follow Jesus in our times. And so I'll, I'll just acknowledge this for me. like it seems easier to just check out and detach from the whole thing, kind of just put our heads in the sand, like that's tempting. That would be maybe easier and a little more comfortable, but we, brothers and sisters, have a responsibility to wrestle intelligently and biblically with how we are to walk uprightly and faithfully and and fruitfully in our generation. Ephesians 5 is kind of behind this short series that I'm doing, it says this, uh, verse 15 and 16, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most, Paul says, of every opportunity because the days are evil. Friends, we are not the first generation to face this kind of turbulence, right? Not by a long shot, but every generation has to rediscover for themselves how to best navigate the particular challenges that are surrounding them and we need God's wisdom according to God's word if we're going to follow Jesus in 2020 and beyond. There are many who seem to sense and are projecting out a sort of inevitable inevitable collapse of Christianity. But that's not what Paul sees, and that's not what, what I think I see or what we should see. In Ephesians 5, when cultural evil seems to be outpacing spiritual renewal, especially at a social level, Paul did not see doom. Paul saw opportunity. And that's what we should see in our own climate right now is opportunity. Paul's urgency to make the most of every opportunity here. It, it's not applying pressure to you and me, okay? It's inviting you and I into surprising possibilities. There's, again, a lot at stake uh, in our times and and, and we, we, we all feel our inadequacies. I suspect very deeply, but none of us wants to waste our lives. None of us wants to settle for mediocre Christianity or bring reproach upon Christianity. But it seems like there's a million ways to fail right now, and I'm not sure if there's very many clear ways at all to succeed. And so perhaps you feel paralyzed by the moment that we find ourselves in. And if so, I just want to tell you, you're in the right place this morning. Last week, we considered a word of caution. Today, we're going to receive a word of encouragement directly from Jesus. I mean, the whole, I mean, encouragement at its core is to impart courage to someone. And Jesus is really good at giving courage to his people. And so we all need that right now. Let's just open ourselves up to him. Okay, we're going to read from Mark 14, verse 3 through 9. It says this, And while he, that's Jesus, while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over her, his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is God's word. Last week we were in John 11 and we read about Lazarus's resurrection and and some of the aftermath. That passage ends with the Jewish religious leaders kind of uh, resolved to arrest and killed Jesus because he was drawing away too many followers and they, they anticipated that he would draw then uh, the attention of the Romans who they feared would take away their place and their nation. And so that was kind of the warning we dealt with was overvaluing our place and our nation, that, that, that we might overvalue our place in the world, that we might have an allegiance to our nation that unwittingly surpasses our allegiance to the kingdom of God. And so in John's gospel, immediately following the account of Lazarus's resurrection, this very same story from Mark 14 is told in John's own words. So that's the next part of the sequence. Uh, This scene is playing out in the sort of intensifying pressure cooker of Jesus's looming arrest. This is his final week before his crucifixion, right? So tensions are high. And from John's account, here's what we know. It's that The woman referred to here who who poured the oil over Jesus's head, it's Lazarus's sister, Mary. They they lived in Bethany, too. That's where uh, that all took place. And so here, Jesus is at, we're told, Simon the leper's house. And Mary, his friend, this dear friend of Jesus, bursts into the room. and, And then this sort of embarrassing spectacle unfolds. So we're thinking today about how we should live in light of the different challenges that we are facing right now, those things that are right in front of us, the the different expectations maybe of us, the different criticisms that are levied against us, the different accusations that are aimed at us, the different temptations pulling on us, the different social rewards and, and maybe other earthly advantages which may come to us if we'll just adjust our Christianity to fit certain parameters for people, right? If we'll adopt the, the Christianity which some other strand of professing Christians presumes upon us or, or if we'll adopt the Christianity which the world is more comfortable with us living out. Now, there's a lot of ideas, different ideas, competing ideas of what our Christianity should be, what, or what Christianity should be. And Mark 14, though, is a picture of what real Christianity actually is. The the Christianity which Jesus not only endorses personally, but the, the Christianity which he associates himself with fully. Brothers and sisters, there is a lot of Christianity in our city, in our state, in the South, in America, which is warped and deficient and defective. There are a lot of ideas and assumptions associated with Christianity, which have nothing to do with Jesus at all. And then then there's a lot of things that are attached to Christianity, which are of Jesus, but people want them while having nothing to do with Jesus himself. And this is why we need the encouragement from Jesus in this text. Because our social environment, man, it's very convoluted. We can get intimidated and overwhelmed, but Jesus in Mark 14 is helping to simplify and clarify the Christianity that he creates. He's not asking for some super Christianity or impressive Christianity or a popularized version of Christianity. He just wants true Christianity. God doesn't need us to legitimize Christianity for our generation He just wants us to be legitimate Christians in our generation. Mark 14 is telling us what biblical Christianity actually is. And so I want us to see it in three parts. I want us to see the essence of Christianity, the simplicity of Christianity, and then the power of Christianity. Okay. The essence, the simplicity and the power of Christianity. Number one, the essence of Christianity. I actually want to just skip down to verse eight because the whole Thing kind of converges here. It says that she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Okay, Jesus is interpreting the whole thing kind of through that lens. But I want us to recognize that Mary's love for Jesus on display, like this is lived Christianity coming out of her, but her love for Jesus, we need to recognize this, is responsive. She has been loved by Jesus. She's been ministered to by Jesus. She has tenderly looked upon Jesus and had him tenderly look back at her. He's, he, she's, Jesus has attentively listened to her, and he's playfully laughed with her. She's been angry with Jesus. We have an account of this specifically where she was angry with Jesus, and it didn't make Jesus frustrated with her in the least. So she has walked with Jesus and experienced his gentleness and his warmth and his kindness and his patience. He, she's seen the intensity of Jesus directed at the right things, and she's seen Jesus overlook the right things too. She has been swept up in the fullness of who Jesus is, and even Jesus' response to her here reinforces what she's already experienced of him. And that's why she's here in the moment. She loves him because he has loved her. And so Jesus, he defends her, he protects her, he affirms her, he even exalts her in front of these other people. She offends their social sensibilities. She gets ridiculed for it. And then Jesus actually elevates her status. Now, we don't know why or how I should say conscious she was of doing what Jesus credits her for doing here, right? When he says that she has anointed my body beforehand for burial, like we don't know if she's aware of that, that she's doing that, but she has heard Jesus for sure predict his own death and resurrection. We, we know that the disciples heard those same predictions and were often confused and they weren't really grasping the gravity or the specificity of what he was meaning in all of those occasions. But but, but, but Jesus nonetheless saw deep and profound meaning in her actions. And so he 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 brought all of this back to his own death. Right? Jesus's love for Mary, the love which she felt and encountered in Jesus was personal for her. But let's recognize that it was not exclusive to her. Because Jesus's love for guilty, undeserving sinners, is massive enough that he knowingly and willingly and sacrificially and Hebrews tells us even joyfully endured the cross so that we too could live permanently in his love. Right? The essence of Christianity is not just some generic God with an ambiguous love. It's a personal God with a very particular love, a love that is for us and so expansive and infinite that he sent his own beloved son to demonstrate His love, to prove his love by coming into human history, by taking upon himself human flesh, by entering into the full range of the human experience and subjecting himself to the full range of human suffering, by treating others with a sort of unspoiled humaneness and thus maintaining his own full humanity. He he, he sacrificed his life for the guilty and violent humanity, and, and, and he did so through this ultimate act of cosmic treason on the part of humanity, and he did all of it without a shred of resentment or regret or self-pity. Mary was captured by this love of Jesus, which was pressing in real time toward his, its ultimate resolution at the cross, Brothers and sisters, there are all kinds of ways that Christianity is getting distorted and it's grievous and tragic and I'm, I'm stunned by it at times. We need to, this is not obvious to everybody anymore. There is no Christianity without Christ crucified. There, there is no Christianity without the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. That there is no Christianity without the willful, obedient, atoning death of the perfect, sinless Son of God. There is no Christianity without these things. Christianity is all about the love of God coming down to us from above and finding its ultimate expression in Jesus upon the cross. And then as we receive his love and abide in his love, then then his love continues to energize us and explode out of us back to him and then express itself through us to others. The essence of Christianity is not our sinfully distorted ideas of love or our broken filters which presume to define love according to our own manner of thinking. The essence of Christianity is God's ultimate reality of his love concretely manifesting and defining itself by the love of Jesus Christ. Christianity is God wooing us into fellowship with him. His love received by us with the empty hands of faith in the infinite perfections and in the finished work of Jesus. He initiates toward us. We respond to him. He loves us and he makes us alive to him by sending his spirit to personalize and internalize his love for us. And it's not a fleeting or fickle love. I love John 13 verse 1 where it, it it's like John interrupts and corrects our thoughts and our assumptions that the love of God is temporary and temperamental until we really screw things up. And so all those fears that it's just a matter of time. It's all alleviated in this one statement where John says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus never started loving us on the basis of anything good in us. And he will not stop loving us on the basis of anything bad in us. He he didn't just love us and forgive us or forgive our past. He loves us right now, and he's forgiving our present failures. He is right now looking upon all who are his within this world and loving us the most at the very point of our weakness. He's loving us most at the very point of our worst failures. He's loving us most at the very point of our cowardice. His love is such that when we least deserve it, He most delights to give it. He holds nothing of his loving heart back from us, brothers and sisters, and we have nothing of our own withered or wandering hearts which repel him from us. We can open ourselves up to him at our point of greatest vulnerability, at our point of most aggressive guardedness, because that is precisely where he will be most tender and relentless in his love. He doesn't need us to prove anything of our love to him. He just wants us to accept the proof of his love given to us. Christianity is an ongoing and deepening encounter with the love of God for us continually visited upon us through Jesus by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, making God's love the realest thing in all the universe. It's that ongoing and deepening encounter with God's love for us that leads then to, number two, the simplicity of Christianity. Let's go back to the beginning of this passage in verse three. It says, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And so they scolded her. Friends, there are two versions of Christianity playing out here. That there's one that is of man, and then one that is of God. One of them we see all around us, and frankly, we may have settled into something of it ourselves. It's buttoned up, it's put together, it's respectable and appropriate, it it fits comfortably within our cultural norms, it upholds the social best practices, and it reinforces the status quo. It's a false religion of half-hearted, tidy Christianity, and it's not easy to see. It is easy to be fooled by it, except when we see it set against, as we do here, the real thing, authentic Christianity, which consists in this wholehearted, no holding back, willing to be humiliated, messy, costly, unsophisticated, unrefined, uh, sort of all-out from the guts, love for Jesus. Like, that's what Jesus is really after. Like, one of these versions of Christianity, Jesus rebukes, one of them he defends. One of them, Jesus interrogates. One of them, Jesus celebrates. One of them, Jesus just dismisses out of hand. The other, he will memorialize for all time. And here's the most unsettling part. The the people referred to in Mark 14, the people gathering for this occasion, he doesn't tell us who they are. Matthew, when he tells the same story, identifies them for us. It's the disciples. It wasn't Jesus's enemies, the Pharisees, that found Mary's love for Jesus problematic. It was Jesus's closest friends who found Mary's love for Jesus problematic. John, he goes a step further, gets even more specific in his account of the same event. He tells us that it was Judas in particular who was the most disturbed and who specifically pivoted to this sort of self-righteous, you know, we could have fed the poor with all of the money from this idea. The fact that it was Jesus's disciples who were, uh, what does it say in verse six, who were or verse five, who scolded her. Like this should give us pause, brothers and sisters. This should stop us in our tracks because it's entirely possible that any one of us presuming to follow Jesus could fall into this pattern of being tepid toward Jesus. That in our routine with Jesus, we can grow cold towards Jesus. And if we ignore that drift it is entirely possible that any one of us could end up in the place of Judas betraying Jesus. I mean, here's how it goes. She comes in, she breaks the jar. Uh, We're told again, it's 300 denarii, which is the equivalent to a day's, one denarii is equivalent to a day's wage. And so we're talking about an ointment worth essentially nine months salary. And so if you have a household income, just to put this in perspective of, $72,000 $72,000 and you save up for a car that costs $54,000 and you pay cash for it and then drive it over off a cliff for Jesus, like that's sort of what you're doing. Well, maybe not drive it, but push it off the cliff, I guess, because um, she didn't really do that. And so obviously there's no honor in doing that. If you have that car, you shouldn't do that. But it at least that gives you some frame of reference for the economic value that we're talking about here. And She could have come in and and opened the lid and poured a little bit out and added more as needed, theoretically. But Mary comes in and she she just breaks it. Man, I love that because what it symbolizes is, man, there is no holding back here. And there's no going back. This was this emotional outpouring of love for her Savior and her friend, with no concern for appearances, right? It was for Jesus. And that's actually what bothered the disciples. It's what blessed Jesus, but it's what bothered the disciples. And so they respond annoyed. Her display of love underscores the limits of their own love. How far she was willing to go made them feel conspicuous about the boundaries they had on how far they were willing to go. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong, the disciples are good church people like you and I, and so it's not like they just admit their jealousy or criticize her for loving Jesus. They cloak that, they cloak their apprehensions towards Jesus behind a veil of generosity. Oh, we could have sold this and given to the poor. (laughs) There's so much of this right now. There's so much that calls itself Christianity, and there's so much that that looks in on real Christianity and wants more of what's here. And and, and what I mean is this, that there are a million good causes out there. Like there's a lot of people in real need and that's not trivial. People are hurting, they're hungry, they're lonely, they're vulnerable, they're suffering. And Christianity has something both earthly and unearthly to offer them But man, Satan loves to incite our flesh to support good causes as a way to evade Jesus. The the world would love nothing more than for Christians to pour all of our resources into legitimate, worthwhile causes so long as we leave the cross and Christ out of it. They would love for us to feed every hungry mouth so long as our mouths stay silent about Jesus. Jesus calls us to proclaim the good news of life with God made possible in and through Jesus. And good works, they are a way of getting a hearing for that good news. They are a way of proving the power of that good news. That's biblical. But to replace the good news with good works? That's of the devil. And this is a part of the moment that we find ourselves in. Our world wants reconciled communities. They want no part of the message or ministry of reconciliation, according to the gospel. We want the fruit of the gospel without any mention of the gospel. We want the reality of the kingdom of God. And we don't want to deal with God. We want a perfected world without the creator and redeemer of the world. We want justice. We can't stand the thought of a judge. The pressure to do good and leave Jesus out of it is strong and it's growing. And I suspect it will continue to intensify. Churches are filled with people complying with that movement which may be why there's a lot of critics in the church today of the church. Because when we fit Christianity into the world and into worldly systems so that it doesn't ruffle any feathers, then we actually end up opposing real Christianity. Like the disciples were in this moment. We, we scold those who actually take Jesus seriously. And We follow him wholeheartedly. We, we criticize those who follow him wholeheartedly. Those who trust his word unequivocally. And in our irritation with them, we end up opposed to Jesus. We're so afraid of going too far in our love for Jesus that we never seem to stop and ask the question and consider the consequences of what happens if we don't go far enough. Verse 6, Jesus responds to this. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? And I love this. She has done a beautiful thing to me. What they thought of as embarrassing, Jesus thought of as beautiful. And this is the simplicity of Christianity, beloved. If we will get over ourselves and just let Jesus's love for us overtake us, then beautiful expressions of sacrifice and worship and generosity will surge out of us we won't be able to keep from serving others in need or helping those who are weak or identifying uh, identifying with those who are oppressed or sitting with those who are wounded or defending those who suffer injustice or dignifying those who have been marginalized. Christianity is, is just the willingness to let all of Jesus impact all of us, to let the totality of who he is change the totality of who we are. We don't have to we don't have to go through with that. It's not a given. We can stay safe. We can sit back and stay in control. We can keep our options open and pick our spots and keep up appearances and save face. That's an option. But it's defective Christianity. That's, that is not what Jesus brought to this world. That's just people doing the best that people can do. And that will only get us so far. Jesus tells us as much. Verse 7, he says, For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Our world today is perceiving the same problems now that they were perceiving in Mark 14 2,000 years ago. We've implemented all kinds of different ways to address the problem of poverty and scarcity and disparity in our world, but every society still has the poor. And the world would still rather try dealing with the problem on their own terms rather than dealing with Jesus on his terms. I love this next line. Jesus says, verse 8, she has done what she could. Brothers and sisters, it all kind of converges down to this. I love it. We all need to hear this. She has done what she could. That's not a concession from Jesus. That's an endorsement from Jesus. This is is all Jesus wants from any one of us. We don't have to be out front doing big, impressive things. We don't have to change the world. We don't have to change the culture. We don't have to change history. We don't have to go out and save people. We don't have to fix all the problems around us. We don't have to alleviate every crisis or be involved with every cause. All right, friends, there's a million ways to be useful to the Lord and to be meaningfully involved in our world for the Lord's sake. But there is no way you can be involved with every one of those million things. And so when man, I think about this, when we first planted generations years ago, and I'll never forget, we'd go to conferences a couple of times a year and every pastor or ministry leader that would get up and, and speak, they had some ministry or, or cause or thing that they were affiliated with. And they were all amazing. Like they're all great things. Right. And, but they'd say something to the effect of, Hey, if you aren't involved in this cause or alleviating this kind of suffering, then you're, you're not being faithful to the gospel, right? It was like fighting human trafficking, pursuing racial reconciliation, caring for the poor in our community or the immigrants or refugees serving maybe in the education sector, you know, mentoring or tutoring, uh, ministering to the incarcerated or rehabilitated, opposing abortion or doing foster care, right? It's like all of these things. And and, and people are saying, man, this is a gospel industry and a gospel issue and gospel ministries required of us uh, or requires this of us. <laughs> and I'm a pastor, like we got like 30 or 40 people and all of them have like three or four children each, it seems, and no money. We're just trying to figure out how to not screw up our lives. And man, there's like this albatross pulling me down as a person and as a pastor. going like, I'm never doing enough. Our church is never doing enough. And it's because there's a lot of well-intentioned people telling us you have to do more. It's not enough. But then some of that drowns out the voice of Jesus off to the side saying, hey, Just do what you can. Nothing more, nothing less. Yeah, the world demands big, public, dramatic actions. That's what impresses the world. But Jesus isn't impressed by that. He's impressed by private acts of sincere love and personal sacrifice. The sense that we need to do bigger... And more noteworthy things for God keeps a lot of us from doing small and easily overlooked things for God, which are right in front of us. We just think, man, they don't count. They don't matter. And so we withhold ourselves from what we can do because we're too busy imagining a day or or holding out for some big thing out in the future that might satisfy our felt need and and the expectation of others for us. I wonder if collectively if in our focus on big sweeping changes and in our appetite for big, bold actions, if we aren't neglecting a million things that we could be doing that would make a real difference right now. Like, I'm absolutely convinced that faithful Christianity should take on a hyper local focus right now. Like there's no cookie cutter way to be an ambassador of Christ but all of us have a part to play. All of us have things every day which we can do to love Jesus and sacrifice for others both inside the church and outside the church. And here's the thing. I have enough to worry about on my own trying to figure that out. For me, like if I give my attention to policing what you should be doing or what they over there should be doing, like I'm likely going to neglect what I could be doing. So let's get off each other's backs. Let's stop criticizing others. Let's busy ourselves with what we ourselves can do and let everyone else figure out between them and the Lord what they should be doing. And so I'm not advocating for individualistic and privatized Christianity. I'm simply advocating for non-intrusive, non-demanding Christianity that takes the pressure off at the very point where I see Jesus taking the pressure off. So you may be called into healthcare or technology or home remodeling or some trade or education or law enforcement, media and entertainment, whatever. And you're called to certain relationships, right? I mean, your spouse, your children obviously, you have family and friends and brothers and sisters in Christ and neighbors and coworkers for for most of us like man, that's enough. That's like Eating up all of our time. And so these simple and ordinary things of work, where we live and work and play and interact, like these often define the scope of what we can do. I mean, we hear all these different messages of you're not doing enough, but Jesus is giving us this reminder here it is finished. We don't have Jesus' permission to be lazy or apathetic. None of us does. But we do have Jesus' permission to not fulfill every activist's expectations of us. You do have Jesus' permission not to feel beholden to what others try to put on you or require of you. You have Jesus's permission to ignore criticisms of you and attacks on you at the very point of your sincere love for Jesus. People will always see waste where Jesus sees beauty. It's always been that way. And some of us will be called to waste our lives on the mission field or to waste our lives in foster care, or to waste our lives homeschooling our children or waste our lives in public education or waste our lives coaching sports or waste our lives making movies. Waste our lives in public service or in financial services or waste our lives by building and repairing homes. And in different seasons, you'll waste your life changing diapers or cooking meals or changing the oil or mowing the lawn or babysitting or cleaning toilets. But it's the actual wastefulness. Well, the actual wastefulness. I I say all that like, Not It's not really a waste, right? The actual wastefulness or beauty of our lives has less to do with what it is we're doing and more to do with what is animating the things we're doing. And if we will waste our lives for Jesus' sake, he will make sure that nothing is wasted. No matter how small, no matter how insignificant it seems. Beloved, if we Christians stop worrying about public perception, and just wasted ourselves and our lives with loving Jesus wholeheartedly right where we are, I have no doubt our impact would be felt powerfully. It may not be recognized publicly. It it may not, it may even get criticized publicly, but it would be felt. And Jesus would be our fiercest defender and our strongest ally as he was for Mary. And we can be sure of that because number three, we see the power of Christianity in verse nine. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Are, are you kidding me? Jesus himself declared like to the, I mean, we're reading about it still. Like He declares that the beauty of her criticized and ridiculed act would actually ring out into eternity and bear witness to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And here we are. We're 2000 years and change later, and we're proving Jesus's word true because we're still talking about it we're still learning from Mary's example of how the simplicity of loving Jesus and the smallness of doing just what we can for Jesus is actually the thing Jesus uses to change the world we tend to despise our limitations and we think man if only i had more money more more knowledge more pedigree more talent more influence then i would have more impact and Jesus is seeing our limitations as his gift to us that define the scope of our responsibility because we aren't responsible to expand what Jesus has given to us. We're only responsible to offer all that he's given to us back to Jesus. He will take care of the impact himself. And too often our small thoughts of our own lives leave us withholding what little we have to give. Man, if we'll just take the little we have and if we give that, if we put him first with that, he will see that as beautiful and he will make it count in both its immediate context and then far, far beyond. Friends, we think we have good reasons to hold back. For for instance, you might think, and if I go all in with Jesus, with the little that I have and I can't even make that work for him, like I already know I'm terrible at follow through. Why would I set myself up for another failure? And Jesus is here to say, no, 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 stop worrying about your faithfulness. In fact, offer him your unfaithfulness, like your inevitable failure and in futility. Give that to Jesus too. It just enlarges the stage on which he can display his faithfulness to you, which is the whole point anyway. Listen, the world has had enough of this other version of Christianity, the kind where we sit around deciding just how Christian we want to be or evaluating just how christian others are and what the really could really what the world could really use right now is a whole bunch of christians who stop playing at christianity who stop trying to curate their christianity who stop worrying about the branding of their christianity and just start living their christianity by loving jesus enough to love others in ridiculous and costly ways Like, let's stop with the marketing and public relations coordinating of Christianity, brothers and sisters. Loving Jesus is not always so calculating. Let's just get back to the simple mission of Jesus to receive the fullness of his love each and every day so that we don't need the love of our neighbors or the love of the world. We can just busy ourselves and empty ourselves by loving him freely because we love him fully. Let's make this, what we see here, very personal. If we all will keep ourselves in the love of God, as we talked about from Jude a few weeks ago, if we'll waste our lives in sincere love for Jesus, he will surely call generations beautiful. And he will set even greater glory upon us. Beloved, we will never discipline our way into eternal impact. We will never strategize our way into eternal impact. We will never engineer our way into eternal impact. We'll never legislate or vote our way into eternal impact. But we have before us every day the very profound possibility that we could love our way into eternal impact. So let's go waste our lives and let's go waste our resources and waste our reputations on loving Jesus enough to get criticized for it. Let's go, let's let other people worry about trying to change the world by political means and and the attacking of everyone and everything, right? Let's just busy ourselves with changing the world by loving Jesus and others proximate to us in costly ways that make no sense apart from the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scene into a moment in time with Jesus and some of his friends. We thank you for the wisdom and the insight that it gives us into how we might live in our own time. I pray that this vision of who Jesus is and how he has loved us would draw our deepest hearts to him as he's poured out his deepest heart to us. And I ask, Lord, that we would be responsive the way Mary was, with a humiliating love back for Jesus that would cause us to go make extravagant displays of love and costly sacrifices of love for others. Lord, help every one of us to prayerfully discern what it is we can do in the ordinary, everyday flow of life. Help us to reject the pressure to, be, to, 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 to pursue big and fast and famous things for God and to settle into the extraordinariness of doing small, overlooked things for God in obscure places among anonymous people, let us be not just content with that, let us be thrilled to do what we can in places such as you have placed us. Pray that you'd give each of us a vision for what that looks like in our everyday lives. And we pray that we'd be faithful to go after it and that your love would energize us on every step. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.